Jan, we have a full studio. We are, and I'm going to start. I'm going to start, and I'm excited because I've got Anna Jackery back in. Now, the last time she was in here, she had a book called The Lying Down Room. Now we've got Death in the Rainy Season, and it's the same character coming through in a series. Who is it, Anna? Well, yes, it's the same um, character, Commandant Morel, who's a French detective. Um, the first book was set in France, and the second, in the second book, he's in Cambodia on holiday. Um, Morel is actually half Khmer, so he goes to Cambodia quite regularly. And while he's there, um, he has to deal with a murder. Ah, murder. It's a pretty grisly murder, too. Uh, who's been murdered? He's the nephew of a prominent French minister, which is why Morel um, reluctantly has to take on uh, the investigation or at least oversee the Cambodian investigation. And of course, in everything that happens in a French investigation, you know, there's the crime scene, which is all cordoned off. There was, you know, everything's protected and there's um, forensics that go through. What about in Cambodia? Well, from my, my understanding is that in Cambodia, there there's not quite the same level of care, um, and especially when a foreigner's killed. Um, what I've heard from from various people is that you know that there's a certain level of indifference. They they want it cleaned up. They want you know sort of whoever's the Cambodian policeman who is uh, Chase Sarit. Yes. He's only got one leg, or he's got a. That's right. And um, but he lost he lost his leg in a traffic accident. Not a landmark. No, and that's one thing. I when I was there uh, researching the book, I was told there were more accidents um, due to there were more traffic accidents than landmine accidents. And I think that was one of the things I wanted to do was undo some of those sort of you know preconceived notions about Cambodia. Ah ha ha. So of course, what's happened with this rather grisly murder? Um, Sort of Serge Morel, the French uh, detective, he sort of knows that when something's brutal like this, it's usually a personal thing. So um, uh, they expect somebody within the French community. Now let's let's place Hugo. Hugo, who's died, his wife is very pregnant, very very loving. That's right. His best friend Paul. Now I'm going to get you to read a little bit about. Paul. And this is a scene where Paul is with his wife and um, he's just found out that, his, um, that Hugo is dead. He felt her hand on his shoulder. This was pathetic. He needed to get up and get dressed. What was the point of falling apart? He couldn't have another breakdown. How many more times would Mariko put up with his paralytic bouts of depression? An affliction he'd learnt long ago was a part of him, to be accepted and managed as well as was possible. But it took its toll. The last long episode had exhausted him and had exhausted his wife too. I must keep it together. Besides, falling apart would not alter the fact that his best friend, Hugo, was dead. Yeah, this is what I liked about Anna Jackery's writing. We have a lot of, um, you know, detective this and that and this and that, but a lot of growth within the characters. You really um, do feel for them. So... Paul. Paul is married and to a Japanese woman. That's right. And they have a daughter. And the daughter was sort of befriended by Hugo, the guy that died. That's right. And sort of there's, there's these complexities going on. So what was Hugo doing in Cambodia? Well, he's a, he, he was an aid worker there and he's someone who has a, you know, a very strong reputation as an aid worker. 
He's very ambitious, and I, throughout the book, I tried to sort of develop his character and so that, you know, to write about him, even though he's gone, to give that sense of someone who was extremely good and, and well-regarded. But, but of course, you know, there, there are other things that make up mm. a person's character, and th that was his public persona. So your research into this book, um, the police, as well as these ad agencies, you know, sort of with the agency that he's working for, 15,000 kids teaching them real skills, mechanics, electricians, hairdressers, so they can earn a living. That's so right. that's, you know, it's that many kids? Well, when I, when I was over there um, two years ago to research the book, I, met, I actually met with someone who, who runs an NGO called Friends International. He's a Frenchman. And, he, and, and a lot of the, that sort of detail comes from my conversation with him, although the two, it, my, my aid organization's fictional and, and Hugo's nothing like him. But, um, but he did talk about these street children. And by street children, he, you know, this, this man was telling me that a lot of them do have parents. It's just that they're left to their own devices mm -hmm. and they, they do spend a lot of time on the street. So at this um, NGO that uh, Hugo sets up, there's some work colleagues. There's Adam, who would like his job, um, and but he also uh, suffers from panic attacks. So we mm. don't really know about these, you know, whether it might be that he's got a, a guilty about something. And there's also Kate Sullivan, who uh, is called a self-righteous do-gooder. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Now, these kids, because they're not in schools, they are at risk. And this is what Kate's actually just emailed, a list of ped pedophile suspects. And she's highlighted a name. Mm. And this links us into some of the terrible things that are going on mm. you know behind the scenes the pedophile pedophilia rings and the um and and who is this bruno mm. Mm. And, but the thing that is also giving us a bit of a what's going on here is the land the land being divided up you know there are a lot of strands i think that i wanted to explore because you know there are a lot of things going on in cambodia that i find interesting you know the the, the land evictions the fact that people are being you know pushed off their land, um, you know, land that they farmed for generations and, and there's not, not much protection for, or, you know, for, for these people, um, all in the name of greed, you know, because uh, Cambodia has a very corrupt government. And, but the, the, the situation with uh, children is also, you know, there's a lot, of, there are a lot of vulnerable children there and there are issues around paedophilia. And, um, and I think um, an, an organization like the one that Hugo worked for would be quite involved mm. in some of those things and working with the police to, to try and address that. Mm. Okay, so we'll get into some of the secrets now because as it mentioned Adam, who really has problems with especially remembering things about his father. It goes on, quote, quoting from Anna Jackery's book, everyone had secrets. It was just the same. It was just that some were harder to carry than others. Some secrets sank so deep into your conscience that they ceased to trouble you, almost. Every once in a while they resurfaced and that was when they knocked the wind out of you. Mm. Mm. So we have Adam and his relationship with his father. Even Hugo's relationship with his mother. Mm. You know, she was in the political powers to be back in uh, France. That's right. And she just didn't want him to embarrass her. Mm. And she's quite a cold woman. 
And I think the, 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 I mean, you talked about characterization earlier. I mean, for me, that's what makes it the most interesting thing about writing a story is developing characters and, and trying to make them as complete, you know, and uh, as three-dimensional as you can. And, and everyone is a mixture, you know, it's many things at once. And I think that's what I wanted to convey. And a lot of what you've experienced growing up shapes what you are, you know. And so those are the things I was interested in exploring. Well, let's get right back then to uh, command, Commandant Serge Morel, because he's a complex fellow yes. too. You know, he's particularly good at his job. That's mm. why he's being called in by the French, French police. Mm. But um, he, what's his link with Cambodia? Well, he's half Khmer. His mother was Cambodian, and she's dead. Um, his father's French. So he has that connection, and for him it's a way, I think, to maintain that connection with his mother, who was sort of the gentle presence in his life. You know, his, he, with his father he has quite a complex relationship, and his father's a very cerebral man, and they, they have a difficult relationship, but his mother was someone he, you know, who, who a very warm person, a very caring person. So. In her absence, that's that's his way of maintaining a connection with her. I think. Yeah, he's also got a very um, interesting hobby. Now, this came through last time. Mm. What's what's his hobby? How does he how does he relax? He's he's he like he does origami basically, and uh, yeah, In, incredibly technical origami. <laughs> yeah, but for him, I think it's it, it suits his nature because he's sort of he's a little bit introverted. He he needs that time alone too. So it's his way of relaxing, but it's also a way of sort of thinking things through in a, in a, you know, and having that space, the mental space to do, to do that. Now, I reckon he's rather interesting, but you know what I didn't, what I picked up in this book, not the first book, he's handsome. Oh, he's, yeah, that's, in my mind, he's, yeah. He's yeah, it was Mariko, the uh, Japanese woman, who said, you know, sort of commented on yes. him being handsome. Mm. I didn't know that. Oh, now I'm I'm going to take this 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 <laughs> uh, this d- French detective into a, a whole new realm. Oh. <laughs> the sense of atmosphere in this book too is just fantastic. You get the rainfall coming down. Mm. No, that that was important to me. I, I, Cambodia is a place I really love, and. Um, so for one thing, it gave me an excuse to go and spend time there when I decided to set the story there. But I really wanted to get across the, what some of the things that I felt there, some of the impressions, and um, to articulate that. Yeah. Uh, another point you bring out, the difference between Westerners and Cambodians. Uh, Cambodians are less given to introspection but also ridiculously superstitious. Yes, there is that funny mixture, and, and I heard that repeatedly from Cambodians and from uh, many of the, my French friends who have been living there for a long time, there is a bit of that mix of not not dwelling on the past constantly, but at the same time being prone to all these sort of things that, you know, that, that maybe as Westerners we're less inclined to take seriously. So where are you going to take Commander Serge Morel, the handsome one now? <laughs> well, <Next. laughs> the, the, um, well, the book I'm currently working on is set in quite a different setting. It's um, the, one of the suburbs north of Paris where the more tr- one of the more troubled suburbs uh, of Paris and um, where a, a lot of the population is North African and you know you have a lot of housing estates and um, and quite a, and, and people tend to be quite marginalized um, I, I mainly wanted to write about immigration and about what it means to belong and to in- integrate you know so that's quite a different setting not quite as exotic as Cambodia we might get a little bit more of his assistant coming back in yes and I think I've heard, 
I have heard um, a few people say they, they wanted her, you know, they wanted <laughs> her in the story. We don't want more about her. Mm, so that she certainly is back, you know, in, um, in full swing. In she has a very difficult personality, but particularly good at her job. Yes, and they form a good duo because um, they sort of complement each other, I think. Mm. Well, as I said, I was so looking forward to having um, Anna Jackery back again because I loved her first book, um, The Lying Down Room. But this one, Death in the Rainy Season, fantastic. It's published by Pan Macmillan. Thanks very much, Thank Anna. you very much. Well, I haven't got a segue. I'm just going to leap straight across uh, with my guest. The pressure to be successful, the pressure of fulfilling expectation – and the pressure of openly acknowledging your own identity can take an exacting toll. Maria Katsonis has documented her struggles in her autobiography, The Good Greek Girl. So, Maria, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me here, David. What makes for a good Greek girl? You can look at it from two different perspectives. There's this sort of surface perspective, which I did not do, which is about a good career, marriage, family, children. I sort of rebelled against all of that. But there's also this, uh, what we call in Greek, felotimo, which is those Greek traditions and mores of duty, respect, to do the right thing uh, with your culture, which is still... I kept despite that uh, rebellious streak that uh, pushed away all those surface requirements. What did you do to uh, break or defy that those uh, expect some of those expectations? It wasn't until probably my first year university that I started to push away against those conventions and the, that kind of um, that expectation. Pretty much all through my you know later high school years, I was a nerdy kind of girl, much more interested in books than boys. So I never pushed the boundaries. But when I got to university, I discovered this extraordinary world outside this safe, middle-class uh, upbringing. Well, there was student theatre to begin with. Yeah, I got very heavily involved. So, you know, I finished high school with good marks, as I was supposed to, trotted off to Melbourne Uni to do an economics degree, which was expected uh, of me, and hated it. I hated my first year in the commerce faculty at Melbourne Uni. It was full of kind of rugby-loving private school boys, and I just didn't fit in. And I found myself, and I'd been involved in theatre at high school, so I found myself attracted to student theatre department at Melbourne Uni. It was the halcyon days of the early 80s. You know, the degeneration were doing the law review. Barry Kosky was a wunderkind director in training. Kate Blanchett was actually doing plays in the Gill Theatre and I just fell in uh, amongst these and started to um, pursue a real strong love of the theatre and at the same time I started to appreciate why I never thought I quite fit in particularly when it came to to boys and why I wasn't interested in them in high school at all because that's when I started to realise I liked girls and it wasn't just this I know you had an inkling of this in high school, but everyone in high school says, oh, it's just a phase you're going through. But I realised it wasn't a phase. But with this Greek tradition that you come from, how serious is this, That what you're doing? It's extraordinarily serious. You have to go back and think, when my parents came out to Australia in the 1950s, they came out uh, for a better life, not just for themselves, but also for their yet unborn children. So I had this life script that was written for me on the boat 
coming out to Greece. And that did include marriage and it did include children and it did include a good Greek husband uh, as part of the marriage package. And just to give you a sense of how difficult it was going to be to discuss my sexuality with my parents, I actually left home. I was the only one out of all my cousins to leave home. Um, All of my other cousins have stayed at home until they got married. And I decided that after second year uni that I really wanted to find my independence. And I went to my father and I said, Dad, I'm going to leave home because I want to be independent. I want to live in the world. And he said to me, you can have all the independence as you want. Come and go. You're free to go as long as you stay here. And that for me wasn't independent. So I did leave. And I had the most hostile, bitter argument with my father in which he called me a putana, which basically means a prostitute. And he you know, hurled a whole lot of other epithets after me. We didn't speak to each other for six months. So I knew that Uh, the next step of talking to my parents about my sexuality was not going to be an easy process. Well, he threw more than insults. Yeah, he became physically violent uh, with me. The decision to come out to them was kind of a bit taken away from me. Up and This was probably when I was around 21. I had come out to all my friends, other family members, but I'd left my parents to last because I knew it was going to be difficult and I was kind of waiting for the right time. And I was at home one night for dinner and I was like, you and I here, my father was just sitting opposite me at the dining table and he just said to me, is it true what they say about you? And I thought, I don't know what they're saying about me, Dad. And he said, is it true that you're a homosexual? And he said it with such distaste and repugnance. It was almost as if he spat it out. And I wasn't prepared for the question. Uh, and I wasn't, didn't have the ready answer that I wanted. And it was like this question kind of hung over us. And I thought, well, I either lie, and if I do lie, I'm going to be caught in a lie for the rest of my life, or I say yes, not really knowing what the repercussions were. And he just leapt across the table and punched me in the face. And that was the beginning of what was quite a, a, a savage beating. Have attitudes changed since then? I mean, how much is that part of the Greek community's uh, expectation? Have the expectations in the Greek community changed since then? What's Not overly, I don't think. I think there's, there's still some issues in the Greek community about expectations around women. When I was researching uh, Good Greek Girl, I was researching uh, other contemporary female voices because there aren't that very many out there writing about our culture. And I read a piece, there's a Greek-Australian newspaper called The Neos Cosmos, which puts out an English edition. And there was an interview last year with three Greek-Australian women of my age, all very successful, lawyer accountant, teacher, but they hadn't married. And in the interview, they either chose to be anonymous or use pseudonyms for fear of the shame and disgrace they were going to bring on their family. And this is 2014. Well, in terms Mm. of how you've Mm. then come to release this book, how is that possible then? Are you bound or were bound or...? I... I struggled with um, some of the things I talk about in the book. That incident with my father was a family secret that no one ever spoke about, ever, after it happened. Uh, Only about four people knew about it. And for the first couple of years in writing writing the book, I had made this commitment that I wasn't going to write about what happened between my father and I. And in the early drafts, I intimated at this shocking incident, this schism that ripped us apart and I used quite dramatic language and it just didn't work and I was working with a writing mentor at the time and she said if you don't care the readers aren't going to care and I started to rethink the principles on which I 
wrote my memoir and one of those principles that became very, very strong for me was about emotional truth and authenticity and it was at that point I decided to include uh, the incident with my father but still struggled, the good Greek girl still struggled about am I bringing shame and disgrace and what the Greeks call resilience upon the family. Well, I mean, both your parents have since passed away. That's right. Would this be possible if they were still living? No. no. I think that I, I, I couldn't do it if they were if, if they were still here. One of the questions that people have asked me since releasing their book is what would they think about it? And I think my father would, quite frankly, I'd like, uh, there's an answer I would like to give, but re- the reality is my father would be horrified and mm. would be quite embarrassed and ashamed and disgraced by what I'm talking about. This leads then to the second half of the book where you have to reveal something else uh, about yourself or you come a, you, you face another crisis, so to speak. Yeah, and that's the second theme of the book. Uh, is In fact, the overarching theme of the book I think you can look at is being about giving voice. One is giving voice to the Greek-Australian contemporary perspective and the second is about giving voice to mental illness because I was, uh, when I was uh, about 44, it must have been, uh, I was felled with an extraordinary cataclysmic Gale Force 10 episode uh, of depression. Well, just on that, this is the way you describe it. I drew breath, the words tumbling out as I painted a portrait of my depression, stroke by stroke. I described the sensation of drowning in a fathomless pool that had robbed me of the will to live. I felt ice on my face instead of the warmth of the sun, heard screams of despair instead of laughter smelt the rot of decay instead of fragrant blossoms. It was as if my mind was mired in a swamp, unable to hold a lucid thought. So basically, you're, you, you can't function. No, I couldn't function. I, I, would prob- I, I couldn't function, and I didn't know what had happened to me. I'd always equated depression, and I'd never really experienced depression at that level, I don't think. Um, I, I saw depression as an extreme case of sadness, this lingering pervasive menico- you know, melancholia. Mm. I didn't think of it as this, this disabling illness that it would affect my mind, my cognition. I was even physically, uh, it affected me. So for a month, I felt I was in this huge fog, not knowing what was going on. And this little part of my brain clicked and said, maybe you should do an online depression test, which I did. I went to, did a good clinical questionnaire on the Beyond Blue website. And scored right off the charts. And the the flashing um, prompt came back at me, go seek urgent medical attention. And I just looked at it and I said, this cannot be true because people like me, your classic type A, high achiever, doesn't get depression. It was a form of self-stigma. How does this? Um, how does one's identity or the the notion of expectation add to this notion of depression? As in, you're a high achiever, and, and one thing you haven't addressed in the book necessarily is the the pressure of your work, mm. uh, plus the cultural expectation, mm. plus your own nature, high, alpha uh, high achiever. Yeah. How does that? perhaps contribute to depression. I think they all contributed. They all contributed to this, this construction of an identity I had my for myself. They said, I am immune because I perceive depression, that, that that person then perceived depression as a character weakness, as some sort of failing. I didn't see it as an indiscriminate illness that affects anybody irrespective of socioeconomic background, educational standing, no matter where they are uh, in the role that they have in society. So I didn't go and seek treatment. 
And because I didn't seek treatment, I deteriorated and progressively got worse to the point where I was catatonic and had to be hospitalised within 24 hours. Mm. Now, what strikes me is is interesting. You have that description of depression, but then uh, the psychiatrist gives a report and the, the sort of... I don't, Disconnect's not the right word, but the the complete difference in description. Just let me read. Uh, Dear Jill, this is your uh, yeah. the doctor that referred you to the psychiatrist. Thank you for asking me to see uh, Maria Katsonis. Uh, this letter outlines my firm formulation and management suggestions, which she will discuss with you. Family history. Her mother mm. had some history of stroke-related depression, etc. Development experience. She described her early childhood. Personality, de- temperament, features. Um, it's it's clinical and removed and distant. How, what what struck me is how could this person possibly help? <laughs> well, they did help. And I think it's because they had that objectivity and that distance. And they, they, they saw it like uh, an illness. Uh, and I included that because to get that other perspective of what it was like to see someone like me and also so to, to take away, to demystify. I mean, when my, when my doctor said, I'm sending you to a psychiatrist for an evaluation, I was terrified, absolutely terrified. Yet if I had stomach problems and my doctor sent me to a gastroenterologist specialist, I wouldn't have thought twice about it. But there's something about psychiatry that I think instills, still instills a fear in people. We think of the men in white coats. We think of straight jackets. We think of one flew over. Over the cuckoo's nest. So I, I did want to demystify the, the the practice of psychiatry, which is why I, uh, I write in great detail. Uh, there's a section of the book called Hospital, which chronicles in quite some detail the five weeks I spent in the psych hospital. Another thing that you don't really go into, and I talked to you about this off air, is uh, your work, which um, you, you don't actually make too much mention of it but it's a high-powered yeah bureaucratic role and and this would have contributed as well yes i one of the reasons i didn't talk about my work i work as an executive in the victorian um, public service was trying to balance and i've something i had to deal with subsequent to the release uh, of the book bureaucrats like me tend to be nameless and faceless Right? I've been working in the bureaucracy for 16 years. The less people know about me, uh, the better. So when I was writing the book, I was uncertain about how much of me did I want to put in professionally. I mean, I did. I do talk in more, more, more general terms. And now I'm finding uh, that uh, with the media that I've been doing, uh, with, re- in, with respect to the book, it's put me in an interesting situation whereby I am developing a bit of a, a media profile. And it's unusual for a bureaucrat uh, to do that. It's something that I've had to, to, to balance. But people have been extraordinarily supportive about it. So it's taken away that little bit of fear I think I had about exposing myself professionally in the book. But it raises the question then of, of the person in a bureaucracy with all their strengths and weaknesses and being open to that. So, I mean, like coming out as gay within the Greek community, coming out with depression Mm. within a bureaucracy, how do you do that? Well, that was quite well known because I my first foray into writing was writing an op-ed for The Age uh, about six months after I came out of hospital. So that was the big um, foot forward in terms of that was still very internal uh, within the bureaucracy. What I'm finding interesting now, because the book's been out uh, just under four weeks, is people are obviously reading it, people at work uh, are reading it. And it's not just the people I hang out with at work who are really kind of good friends as well as colleagues. It's the person, you know, a couple of floors up who I only see in the tea room every so often who now now knows the most intimate details uh, of my life. But uh, what I'm finding is that person is reflecting to me what they see about their own lives in the book. They mightn't be a good Greek girl. They might have had a good 
Jewish kind of uh, upbringing, or they had a, a sense of rebellion or had to deal with grief. But does that improve a bureaucracy, having that background? Yeah, it does. I think it improves, um, it, it provides a sense of um, uh, connectedness in the workplace and also I think improves our emotional literacy. Uh, a little bit as well. An awareness of, of your colleagues. Um, well, just to finish off the interview, what then are the aspects of a Greek culture that are uh, supportive and uh, actually help you? The, the philotomo, as the you... Philotomo, the philotomo, it has been absolutely extraordinary. The, the sense of pride from my cousins. I have two aunts in their 70s of my parents' generation, both who came to my launch uh, at readings and who were so extraordinarily proud. One of them is quite conservative and there was a big profile of me in the Greek newspaper in Greek and I really was concerned about what she might say, what she might think and she said, Maro, in Greek it happened such a long time ago. I just want you to know that we love you and you couldn't ask for anything more than that. Indeed. Maria, thank you for coming in today. The book is The Good Greek Girl and it is a Jane Curry Publishing Jan. Uh, Anna Jackery, mm. I had with A Death in the Rainy Season by Pan Millen. I'm going to take one minute to talk about um, Maria. You mentioned mm. having a writing mentor. Yes, I did. Tell us a little bit. Uh, the writing mentor to me was absolutely instrumental. Her name is uh, Lee Kaufman. I got her through Writers Victoria, the Writers Centre, and I spent three years with her. Uh, and it was the equivalent of doing uh, a graduate study in creative writing. And that's exactly what Anna is just in the middle of doing now, PhD that's in creative right. writing. Yes. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.